0: Welcome to Access Ideas, where we share insights and perspectives that spark curiosity, conversation, and inspiration. I'm Jana, and today I'm sharing a conversation with events strategist and founder of Kick-Ass Conferences, Isaac Watson. Isaac has produced over 50 conferences and gatherings worldwide, specializing in event strategy and design for communities, including Clarity, the Association for Women in Science, and the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network, to name just a few. Isaac is also an avid traveler and advocate for sustainable entrepreneurship, and he hosts the Make It Kick-Ass podcast with Nessa Jimenez. In today's conversation, Isaac highlights the challenges of creating memorable events in virtual, in-person, and hybrid spaces that set the stage for life-changing moments. We also discuss the trends in bringing communities together after the pandemic, the importance of understanding specific elements of an event budget, and how to determine the best design for an event. And with that, I bring you Isaac Watson. Welcome to Access Ideas, Isaac. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks, Diana. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'm really excited to talk to you today as I listen to some of your podcast episodes. I revisited some of my own experiences hosting, or I should say more planning, conferences and events and, and being behind the scenes, and I'm actually working on one right now with the company I'm with, but I had some really, you know, great aha moments listening to you and uh Nessa, Nessa Jimenez, I think mm-hmm. it is, speak about what are the big challenges that you deal with. And so maybe we can start with you telling us a bit more about what is kick-ass conferences and why did you start this company?
1: Oh, that is a always a great place to start. I started out as a freelance event producer. I cut my teeth backstage doing content production for a larger conference, community-oriented conference, and decided I loved it and wanted to do it full-time. But I got to the point where I was—I had more inbound clients than work I could take on myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I need a team. and I really what I what I realized is that the kinds of experiences that we that I was creating at that time were something that would benefit more people than I could personally support so I brought in a uh, someone who was originally started as a a virtual assistant that's Nessa she's now uh, heads our operations and I incorporated the, the business in 2016, and I essentially set out to create a bit of an agency model, a very small agency model, but I wanted to create a business that could sustain multiple projects throughout the year and have the capacity to flex and grow and, and serve all of those clients' needs. And as I kept doing it and kept doing it, I started to talk a little bit more with my colleagues locally who are other event producers. We had this great little collective of, of producers in Portland that were working across all kinds of different stuff. And I was seeing that like we were all doing the production work. We were all doing client management. We were all doing invoicing. We were all doing sales. We were all doing business development and marketing in our own ways. And I just thought to myself, like, that's really inefficient. (laughs) Because also, we're not all great at all of these things, right? So the the more my business started to take off, the more I realized that I actually really love doing strategy. Uh, I can do the production, and I'm great at that too. But the joy for me comes in doing the strategic work and, and helping solve the client problems. So if I can focus on that, I can then bring in client work that I can then bring a team in to support on the execution. And those people who are really good at production and planning can focus just on production and planning without having to work on you know, their own book of business and sustaining that. So ultimately what I'm trying to get to is, is a a close-knit team of people who are all in roles that they absolutely love and all working under a sustainable business that that supports them and values them and the work that they do. So Kick-Ass Conferences is a event strategy design and implementation agency. So we do client work where we are hired in to help create an event, a conference typically for a community who is looking to take things to the next level with with their connections and kind of move things forward with whatever it is they're setting out to do. So we do the soup to nuts process. So start from the early concept and figuring out what the strategy is through our event lab framework. Uh, Then we get into the actual planning phase, bring in whatever size team we need to execute on that. Sometimes we'll work alongside a client's uh, internal team on various aspects and then carry it all the way through to production and actual go time. And then all of, of course, the follow up and the payments and all of the budget reconciliation that comes afterward.
0: Sure. And this is a very specific area. You're not working with well-oiled machines who have put on millions of conferences and events in the past. So I'm guessing there's a pretty significant education component in walking clients through decision-making. So how would you differentiate yourself there I saw there was an analogy on your website about the marble run and and mm. taking clients through each step. Maybe you can describe that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so we use the marble run analogy because we work with a lot of community leaders and we the, the marble run is this, you know, big great big kind of elaborate machine that uh, oftentimes you'll see as a kid in a science museum or a public space. And it's this contraption that keeps a steel ball or a marble of sorts running through this whole gauntlet of track and and whatnot. And in order to keep that ball rolling, you have to have points that give it momentum or acceleration or lift it up to the top of the next phase. And we see a, a really superb community event as being one of those components of the machine that can do that, that can give more kinetic energy to the ball that is your community and keep people rolling through it. Oftentimes in the work that we do, it's in an annual conference form. So it's a single point of time that then carries that energy through a whole year until the next time around.
0: You're using the word community. So I'm getting the sense that it's not just companies or for profit or even not for profit corpor- or even not for profit organizations but maybe you can outline or give some examples of groups communities who come to the point where they realize hey we want to put on an event and we could really use some help and we don't really know where to start is there a certain size of community where mm. an event would start to seem to make more sense or is it more about enthusiasm and engagement levels what would you say uh
1: it i I think it depends um but i would say that generally the rule is that you need to have a, a community that's built up enough to be sustainable in and of itself because an event is not going to in an all by itself, grow your community. It can contribute to your community growth, but you need to have a community to draw from if you're gonna host an event that then serves that community. I would say like rule of thumb speaking, when we look at clients that we tend to work with, that's generally a group that's around a thousand people. Usually these are online communities or they're distributed communities that are coming together for in-person events. That of course, you know, can vary depending on what it is you're trying to provide for them and how engaged they are and whatnot. But that that gives us a good enough size to work from because not everybody's going to be able to attend the event. So you need kind of a, a critical mass to draw from for that marketing. But that kind of size also gives you some robustness and contributions from your community members and structure and organization and leadership.
0: Well, you've produced over 50 conferences and gatherings worldwide. So I have a feeling you probably know what works um, <laughs> through like lessons learned, but also lots of success. What is your philosophy on making the best possible impact? You know, especially for groups that they really need to make it matter because maybe this is one of their first events or they're at a critical juncture and they need that community to bond and engage. What are your thoughts there?
1: Ever since I started working in the conference space and in community events in particular, I always felt like we needed to focus on the attendees and their experience. And so my philosophy has always been start from through their eyes, through the lens of them attending your event and use that as a way to construct what they're experiencing. Because if you can focus on what they're going to see, think, feel, hear, whatever that multisensory experience is, then you're putting their priorities first before your own. And then the next level to that, and part of the strategy work that we do, is blending this kind of diagram of the community itself, the resources that you have available to you, and the vision that you have for your event. Those all have to be balanced, because if you get anything any one piece of those out of whack if your community is too big and you don't have the resources from a team or time or financial perspective then you can't serve them well enough if your event vision is you know sky's the limit and you have no budget then it's going to be really hard to deliver on that so all of those three things work hand in hand to deliver something that's really well executed and gives you good strategy.
0: Mm, definitely. One of the themes that you come back to frequently is the budget. You know, a lot of the <laughs> time, I guess, people approach you without a budget, and they're looking for that sort of input. How do you help clients develop a budget if this is their first or second event? Or maybe they're looking to really upscale something that used to be quite small, or it used to be mm-hmm. online only?
1: Uh I will admit that I'm a spreadsheet nerd and I love budgeting. (laughs) So if the client comes to me without a budget, that's like my perfect scenario because I can help craft that, right? Um, Where where we do run into issues sometimes is if the client's already decided what their budget is before they've gone through that initial kind of concepting process. What we tend to do with our clients is we work on the strategy first, which is the, why are we doing this? Who are we doing this for? What are we hoping to achieve? Once we can align on that, then we can say, okay, here are our goals and here are the outcomes that we want to bring to the table. Now, how can we achieve those? And how much is that going to cost based on our resources, things like the socioeconomic status of your audience, right? Like, if it's going to be a paid event, you need to factor in how much people can afford Um, so all of those go into a budgeting process and I love walking clients through that because there's a lot of stuff, not just with the the strategy around budgeting, but there's a lot of pieces of event production that clients don't necessarily think of before they bring in a producer.
0: What are some of the least known or surprising elements of event production that, that people are surprised to learn about, or maybe it's a bit of a shock for them?
1: hmm. A.V. costs are always more expensive than people think they are, uh, especially if you are working in international hotel chain venues, um, because often they're locked into certain contracts with single vendors. Uh, A.V. costs can be a big thing. I think another big thing that people are having a bit of a rude awakening with these days is that as we've been coming out of the pandemic the cost for food and beverage has skyrocketed. And that's partially due to inflation. That's partially due to labor shortages. That's partially due to properties or or catering companies trying to make up lost profits during the pandemic. And so that can come as quite a shock when they're like, wait, I'm sorry, that's going to be $350 a head per day for f- for croissants and A bag lunch okay great
0: (laughs) (laughs) and food is something that really matters yes Um, i I don't think you can overspend on food i mean technically yes but people really care (laughs) about food at events and and that is always something that surprises me the extent to to how much people care and and how much they'll talk about it and if food is good they might not say a lot, but if it's bad, they will remember that.
1: <laughs> like, God forbid you run out of coffee, right? Like, it's it's such a simple thing. Uh, yeah. And I was in a, at an event recently where that actually happened. And I was, <gasps> just, I was just attending. Oh no. And I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. And everybody's frantically running around trying to figure out how to get more. So, yeah, the food, even though it's not um, – even though food is not something that you have a ton of, like – it, it doesn't like influence your program, right? Or the content that's being delivered from stage, but it's a big part of the experience, whether you have it or whether there's an absence of food, or if you're not accommodating, accommodating dietary restrictions, like all of that can have a dramatic impact on your attendee experience.
0: Absolutely. What were some recent wins and stories that stay with you or what what's something memorable? So, I'm curious just hearing you tell the coffee story. What was the solution? Who saved the day? What <laughs> happened? <laughs>
1: um, I I believe, I mean, I, this was not my event. I was just there as an attendee. Um, so I don't actually know what happened behind the scenes, but I believe they they just scrambled with the, um, it was at a hotel property. And so I think they just scrambled with catering to get some more AirPods brought out uh, with more coffee. But there was definitely that delay between we are out of coffee and, oh, look here, there's more. But it, on the, on a backend side of things, you like that involves like a chain of command, right? So there's a purchasing approval that needs to happen with the organizers. And so that can cause this delay. I think that just kind of emphasizes the importance of making sure you have that stuff planned out in advance. But if I think about um, recently, uh, there are kind of two experiences that come to mind with client work that we've done back in the middle of 2020, like everybody we were stuck at home and we had a client that we had actually signed on in february of 2020 (laughs) to to come in uh they had been self-organizing the event for a couple years it was an in-person conference and they were ready to let that go to a team like ours to support so we signed the contract lockdown happens we're going through and trying to negotiate with the venue to figure out what's going on. And we finally come to terms with the fact that we have to just pivot. It has to go virtual. And this was happening, I think, at this stage in our planning. It was probably April or May. The event was supposed to be in September of that year. And we had already started to see the early signs of Zoom fatigue. All of the people that were forced to work from home, all of the um, events that had to rapidly pivot into stuff and i saw the writing on the wall and i said to the client like we we have to do this right like we can't just open up a zoom with a couple hundred people and let this fall by the wayside so we worked with them to first of all we pre-recorded all of the talks it was three days of content we had professional videographers do all of the production so it was high quality video We worked with an AV vendor who I have a great history with here in the Portland area to set up a studio actually in their office, a live stream studio, and that was our control center. But then we wanted to find a way to connect these people together. And I got the harebrained idea that we actually send everybody a swag kit in the mail. Smart. So we're like working with vendors in the late summer and dealing with all the COVID restrictions and everything. But we put together this little box. And if I had one nearby, I would show it to you. This little six by six box that had some stickers and a a notebook and a printed program and a name badge. And we printed everybody's names on the name badges. And my garage became a fulfillment center. Oh, wow. And was, we're just like, I just had a bunch of people come in and we're just running the assembly line, fulfilling these boxes. We had 500 boxes to send out and we sent them all over the world and we got them out. And what was so remarkable to me, there were two things. One, the excitement of people opening these boxes, getting mail, getting fun mail, right? Like nobody wants to get bills in the mail, but they want to get fun <laughs> mail. And then second, when it came to the actual virtual event, what we had underestimated was how deeply this particular community of people were starved for social connections. I mean, don't get me wrong. We all were during the pandemic, right? Like that Mm -hmm. was just, that was the source of so much pandemic depression, but this particular community needed that camaraderie so much. And so as we're having like the live chat during the live stream was at certain points just brought me to tears because it was so open and vulnerable and honest and everybody was so happy to be there to support each other and to get the support that they needed.
0: Sounds like that was a real milestone in, in your experience and you learned a lot from that.
1: And it was the first virtual event we ever produced. (laughs) So I went, (laughs) I came out of that going, yes, I can do anything.
0: (laughs) And, and that's, So important now, because I don't know that most events have gone fully in person. I think most events seem to have a bit of a hybrid approach now. Is that Mm -hmm. accurate, would you say?
1: A lot of people are trying to, but I think what's happening now is people are realizing what some of the hybrid perils are or challenges that there are to producing good hybrid events. And they're starting to to waffle and, and either go, you know what, I think I'm going to do in person only, or I'm just going to stick with online. And they just have to kind of make that call.
0: And maybe we can talk a little bit more about hybrid events in a moment, but maybe you can walk me through how you can help a client make a decision around, first of all, is your event going to be hybrid or fully in-person or fully virtual? And then how do you decide if it is in-person where to hold that event?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I said before, we always start with strategy. So we talk about the why, the what, and the who. Uh, behind the event, if we can clearly define that, then we can start to look at where, how, uh, when, things like that. A lot of people will jump very quickly to dates, venues, locations uh, when they start thinking about an event. But we want to like slam the brakes on that and say, you know what, let's first figure out who we're doing this for and why it's happening.
0: And why is that? Why are people so quick to assume? Is it because they think, "Oh, this is a cool city. I want to go there," or is it just, "I went to an event there and it was great, and I want an event there too"? Like, wh- why do you think people assume that so quickly? Uh,
1: there's some of that, I think, especially if if somebody uh, feels a strong sense of place, connection to a place that relates to their community. I think the other thing is that when people start envisioning an event. Like, you know, you've, you've been working really hard to bring this community, to build this community that you're working on, and you're thinking about bringing them together, that becomes this kind of visual and your brain wants to put a geographic location and a season and those kinds of things down with it so you can help kind of craft that, that image, right? And that's okay what we worry about is that if you're not thinking about why you're choosing that, because that can then be influenced by either bias or personal interest or any number of other factors that you need to step back and think about who you're doing this for, what their priorities are, what you're trying to achieve, and then find something that fits that bill so we work through all of that strategy up front with the client and then we start to look at site selection and whether and whether or not the event will be virtual hybrid or in person generally speaking we discourage hybrid events at this time i've done them they are we can talk about that in a minute like you said but uh it's about understanding like what is the location of your audience how willing are and able are they to travel how far out are we talking for the event? Does that give them enough time to book travel? If you want to if you want to create an event really quickly, you're more likely to go with a virtual event because it's a lot easier for people to commit to something like that. Other factors would be like, you know, is is this something that somebody's employer would fund, for example? Like if this is a community of UI and UX designers, for example, is this an educational opportunity that they can then get funds for from their companies? And that opens up a little bit different calculus around what your venue is going to be, what kinds of things you're offering, who your potential sponsors are, for example. So once we figure out if it's going to be in person or virtual, then we can start to look at where it would be and if it's in person, we tend to look at like where we need to know about your audience. Like are they geolocated? Is there like a cluster or multiple clusters? can they easily travel? Do you need to do multiple events to go meet them where they are? Or are they going to come to you? And then like, what are the amenities nearby? And what kind of venues can house that? So those are some of the many factors that go into that process.
0: What are some of the unusual events? Obviously hotels are an obvious choice, but what are some unusual event venues where you might recommend, hey, try this community center or gymnasium. I'm just pulling it out of thin air here, but I'd love to hear that.
1: I love independent venues. Uh, I will prioritize independent venues day in and day out over a hotel property. I think that they are more flexible. They're generally speaking more uh, budget-friendly because you're not locked into some of the same restrictions around food and beverage or AV that a hotel property typically has. And they can help support other communities and other organizations. There are a lot of nonprofits who have their own spaces that they then rent out for events, and so your event can then support the the mission that they're seeking, and all, all kinds of other reasons why I love independent venues. But let me tell you about a couple uh, really unique ones. When I think about specific unique venues that we've used in the past, so a number of years ago, a conference that I worked on there was about a. Th- 1,000, 1,500 people, I think, we always tried to find really unique party locations. There was always a big closing party to celebrate all this kind of inspiration and whatnot that everybody had felt. And we ended up renting out an art school.
0: Wow. There was
1: this old historic building that an art school had renovated and uh, was there like main space. And it had this gorgeous atrium and exhibit space and everything. And we, we rented out the whole thing. And I I was not responsible for this particular activity. I had a fantastic event producer friend who took this part on, Um, but she conceived this world of flora and trees and everything and built out this incredible incredible experience where you walked in and it was just color and flowers and all kinds of crazy stuff and there was a dance troupe there and lights Moving up and down. And it was, it was like an otherworldly experience walking into this space that was otherwise an educational institution. And yes, it had creative roots, of course, and, and that's part of what made it work really well. But it was a great way to transport these people to a different venue. The other example I can think of was, uh, I think 2019, I had a client based in Amsterdam hosting a conference for their, it was a, they were a tech tools company. so they were hosting a conference for their users who had come together as a community. And we wanted to host a speaker dinner. But we were having a really hard time finding a private dining space that would accommodate our group that was within proximity to the main venue. The main venue was right on the the main river there in Amsterdam. um, And it's this enormous glass and steel box that had multiple levels inside. And we were kind of frustrated by not being able to come up with a venue for this and for the speaker dinner. And we're going through on a site visit for the main venue and talking about how we're going to use the different spaces and the theater and everything and we end up on the very top floor, which is just this kind of mezzanine that overlooks everything else. It's not very big, and there wasn't really function space up there. But I looked at it, and I said, wow, this is a great view of the city. Could we just put a long table here and do the speaker dinner right here on, wow. like, overlooking everything? And everybody looks around, and they go, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> and it, And we did. And it was amazing, because it was like normally when you're in a private dining room or something for a more intimate space, you're kind of in this crowded in this room. you usually have too many people in there than you should. Um, and so it f- can feel a little bit too intimate in some ways. But what was really great about this space is that we were able to spread out a bit. people could get up and walk around and talk to each other. and it allowed us to have this shared moment where everybody, answered the same question about where they first felt connected to the design community. Oh, wow. Um, And so it just, that weird little like auxiliary space that just happened to be the perfect size for what we needed ended up being the perfect venue for that particular piece of the event.
0: I could even imagine people saying, oh, I met them over there and then pointing to the part of the city Yes, they they might have been. (laughs) That's so cool. And I'm betting that once you find a unique space like that, you might go for another event there with maybe a different group. But once you find what works, what offers unique vantage points or uh, services or just an experience, right? Like you were saying, sometimes dinners can feel a bit claustrophobic and it's super loud. And if you're not a loud person, you can end up not speaking as much as you'd like. But when you do find that great balance do you find that there have been any cities, like are there any unexpected cities that you would say, you know what, I've had really good experiences in that city, or is it more venue-based and and just getting to know the venue proprietors or the services that that work with that venue?
1: I think that within any particular city, it's easy to identify like your go-to vendors and venues that you like, like here in in the Portland area where I'm based, like I know a lot of the venues that like, if I have a client that wants to host a conference here, or if we decide that here's the best place, I'm like, Oh, we're going to try here or here, or like, you know, I've got my go-tos because I know and trust them and, you know, have had good experiences with them. I think though that, Any city could be great. Any city has its little pockets of good spaces and venues. The smaller the city you get, the less amenities you have and the smaller group size you can host. But for me, it's really more important to think about what your specific needs are for your event, what your community's needs are, if you're going to do an in-person event, and then use those to then look at all the different options for where you could go through that lens, right, and find something that fits those criteria. I have had events in the past where we were already locked into a contract at an event or for an event, for example, and I didn't have the opportunity to contribute to that decision-making process. And then we end up running into conflict because, oh, they didn't scope the right number of people across these days or the room block is a little larger than we wanted and we're having trouble filling it and that can kind of that can run into some logistical and financial complications so i think it's really important to be holistic and thinking about first what do you need and then and then scouting out uh, a location from there
0: yeah that makes sense maybe now we'll turn to more of a focus on hybrid because i get the sense that People automatically assume hybrid gives you the best of both worlds, and they think, oh, just make it a hybrid event. But in my experience, it is actually the hardest to pull off because the style of engagement is so dramatically different. As we all know, attending something virtually, you can wear pajamas, you can, you know, you do not have to be physically present in the same way. And in person, there's just a different energy. There's a whole different level of interaction that you experience. So maybe you can start by helping me understand and and our listeners, how do you decide ultimately what format is best? And keeping in mind, of course, that we want everything to be designed that can be inherently inclusive and accessible with with that perspective too.
1: Yes. So... I think from a hybrid's perspective, the biggest thing to remember, and um, this comes from Priya Parker, who wrote the book, The Art of Gathering, and has done a lot of uh, speaking and is a fantastic thought leader in the, in the gathering space, is that when it comes to hybrid events, you're actually designing three events. And people often think it's just two. So she describes that... The first event is the in-person event, the second event is the online event, and then the third event is where the two groups meet. It's those moments where online and in-person interact with each other. And that component is often what's left out in the planning process for a hybrid event and to the to the whole event's detriment Uh, because if if the in-person audience has no idea that the online audience exists and the online audience feels alienated or disenfranchised from what's happening in the room then you're cheapening the experience for both groups so to do hybrid well you have to create ways for those groups to engage with each other and the sad truth of it is that in order to do that costs a lot of money because it requires a lot of technology. (laughs) And I think that's the biggest thing that people are realizing is that hybrid events are very, very expensive to do well. And it's not just about production value. It's about production thoroughness and making sure that you are not othering another group, that you are providing quality content in multiple ways of of being consumed and that you're offering those moments for interaction in a really well thought out way. Usually when we go through this process with our clients, we have to acknowledge that like the pandemic and all of the virtual pivots have showed us how much more accessible online events are geographically, socioeconomically, and, and even from a like production budget standpoint, online events are typically cheaper to do than in person. But as you mentioned, there is something special about being in a room with people, a space with people, and sharing a moment as humans, sharing an experience, a multi-sensory experience as humans that no one has found a way to replicate in an online format. So I think it's important for somebody hosting an event to think about where their values lie around that. Is it more of a priority for you to be as accessible as possible through an online event to find little ways for people to interact with each other and to share their experiences and to connect with each other, but without that little special something that in-person brings? Or do you want to prioritize that in-person experience and being able to craft this whole moment? I attended a conference uh, last month in Boise, Idaho, where it was in person only, and it was the. F- I had been to a couple in person conferences since COVID started, but this was the first time where I truly felt part of a community, and I was kind of, as an event producer, and this was kind of what took me by surprise about it all. I was kind of f- floored and just amazed at how much energy I got from the event, finding my people, connecting with them. I was hyper aware of ambient noises and like hearing little snippets of other conversations and feeling energy in a room or hearing energy. And those are things that online events have not been able to approximate in the same way. There's sometimes some analogs, but the, it's it's a little bit different. So as you think about like whether or not to do it online or in person, you really have to think about what experience you're trying to create for people and how your resources, if I go back to our framework, how your resources can support that. Not everybody has the resources to do this big, you know, to host a 500 person conference in a particular location and spend, you know, half a million dollars on it or something. So it it's just balancing Priorities, values, and what you're trying to achieve with the event.
0: So listening to you and reading between the lines, it sounds like virtual events have their place, and it can be really a boon for those who don't have the budget that they would love Mm -hmm. to have, or for an organization that's geographically very dispersed and the travel cost would just be too much for most participants. Mm -hmm. What is the best we can really expect? from virtual events, because my experience hasn't been comparable to what you're talking about with that in-person energy. I'm not necessarily an introvert or extrovert. I don't know that I always like to define that because it's different contexts and context switching, but there is absolutely value in that in-person energy. And like you were saying, hearing the snippets of conversation and being serendipitously introduced to somebody that knows your friend or or finding out um, that you know somebody who does something that you want to learn about and those are things you just won't get in a virtual environment but of course you have control in a virtual environment as an attendee I I can choose to turn it off turn it on so maybe you can pull put in a little plug for virtual here just (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to totally disparage it, but what is the best we can expect? So we talked about budget. Budget is great. Budget is definitely going to give you an advantage with virtual. Is there anything else that we could say, you know what, virtual will give you that advantage?
1: Yeah. I think that virtual events are actually really great at fostering individual contributions. I think that there is something... Uh, so when you think about a typical in-person conference, the content is top-down, right? So you have a speaker presenting to an audience. You, the audience is only talking to the, each other during the breaks, right? So the social contract is you don't talk during a presentation, and so the the way that content is consumed is different. I think what's interesting about a virtual event, and what I've seen is that uh, like the live chat is actually really interesting, right? So like yeah. whether you're getting emoji reactions to what somebody's saying in real time, or you're getting people offering up their own experiences and as a reaction, that can do a lot to foster community that you can't achieve in person. Because like, say I, I heard a talk that really resonated with me, uh, like I did at this, at this event last month. And then later that evening, I'm talking with a new friend of mine and sharing that experience. But that's just me to one.
0: Mm-hmm. And so that's
1: just a single point of connection that we're having. Whereas if I can share that in a group chat, as the talk is happening... That allows me to make a deeper connection with more people and to have to get reactions to that and that it offers more social exchange that way, which I think is really interesting. And I do think like I, I don't want to just poo poo virtual events. <laughs> um, I've, I've gone back and forth over like, are virtual events dead? They're not dead. But I think that the challenge now is that because of Zoom fatigue, because of the way that work is changing, and because of everything that we've learned over the last three or four years, people are putting a lot more scrutiny behind what they choose to engage with online, how they engage with it. And what their expectations are. And so I think that to do a virtual event well, you have to put a lot of strategy and thought and really inclusive practice behind how you're crafting that. And then that will come through your delivery and make something that's, that's magical for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And everyone can learn from you sending out the swag in the mail because that's always I a bonus. I think the surprise swag in a in a delightful little box is is just such a such a perk. So I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things you recently spoke about on your podcast is speakers and speaker fees. and I couldn't agree more this is something that came up a lot when I supported events and that very question, you know, can't we just get someone to speak for free? So let's just assume that the person you're speaking to understands that they should pay for a speaker. Mm -hmm. What percentage of an event budget is reasonable to spend on a speaker? And you can give a range. It doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. a specific one, but I think people should be prepared to budget and allocate a percentage is there one that you see consistently, or does it vary quite wildly?
1: Mm. Um, so what's interesting, and I I wish I had data to back this up. I could I could go back into my event budgets and come up with a percentage. i don't I don't typically treat it as a share of a budget. What we do is look at speaker compensation, as a thing that's relative to a, an organization's resources, to who we're sourcing for speakers. So are, are these like, you know, corporate level keynotes that typically charge 40 grand per engagement, or are we sourcing from the community or are these thought leaders within a community? There's there's a whole range there. Typically in, in the client work that we do, uh, our speaker compensation packages are We we try to be as equal as possible with our honorarium, so we're not treating any one speaker as more important or more relevant. And then we're we're what we've been doing over the past couple of years is adapting our compensation package to be more inclusive. So asking speakers that we invite, okay, here's our budget for our honorarium, um, and we'll cover you know flight and lodging. But are there other things that would support you attending and contributing your time, such as childcare? Or do you need, is this something that you can can take time off work for to attend, right? And is does that qualify as PTO or is this unpaid leave for you? And so like keeping in the context of what we're requiring of people to participate in this event uh, is always really useful. My, my general go-to for kind of community contributed events is looking at a an honorarium in the range of a thousand to two thousand dollars plus flight hotel. Usually that is transit reimbursement and a speaker dinner of sorts, along with some other perks and things like that. That's that's generally what we work with with the events we do, but different styles of events will take different approaches. If you're, you know, a big nonprofit that's putting on An awards dinner, and you want to bring in a really big name to be your presenter, that's going to cost you a lot more than that. I think because speaker ranges, speaker fees range so greatly, it's really difficult for me to say, like, there's one answer per se. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, that's totally understandable. And again, it it depends on the, the scale the size, you know, the location, all those things, how far I have to travel. There was an interesting example on your podcast episode about this. And that was uh, the speaker who was interested in making connections at the local college or university and maybe giving a talk there. Um, So giving them a chance to make connections at another institution and Mm -hmm. share their thought leadership or insights on their area of expertise does that come up often, or is that something that you would ever suggest as an addition to the honorarium?
1: Mm. Um, it hasn't come up that often. Usually, what we get are requests around uh, either childcare or, you know, a plus one ticket uh, for a partner or some other, you know, maybe an extra reimbursement for a cabin class and on their flight or yeah. something. But on, on occasion, we get requests like that. So so this particular speaker said their whole role was centered, that their job was centered around strategic partnerships with other organizations, and they worked really well with colleges and universities. So uh, they had asked if we could help connect them to any local colleges for additional speaking engagements to kind of make their time in that city a little bit more worthwhile than just the speaker fee that we had budgeted for because we didn't meet what their standard fee was.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great idea though. I think it's something you can think about, you know, it's sort of that idea of what, what people want isn't always the obvious or it isn't always just money. Let me think, I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, do you have, based on the, the communities you work with, would you work with specific speaker agencies that are likely to meet the pricing and the the style of speaker for the events that you host and conferences you organize or like what's your network of speakers how do you find a speaker
1: <laughs> yeah um, so what I love doing is kind of embedding into my clients community and industry and having a good under getting a good understanding of who are the top minds, who are the new voices, um, who, who has something interesting to say. Uh, when we work through speaker recommendations and vetting and things like that, we try to look at sourcing from within a community as opposed to bringing in like a big name. That's not always the case. I've worked on a couple events where we did go through speaker bureaus, especially if we didn't have connections to people who were do a little more professional speaking. Um the, the biggest challenge that I find with that is that they are almost always, as a Speaker Bureau, they're incentivized to get as much compensation as they can because their commission is affected by that, right? And so their bias is to <laughs> charge as much as possible. What I found, if if there's a particular speaker who is working with a Speaker Bureau who we feel like would be a really good fit. It, we found it more successful to try and get in contact with that speaker directly and do an initial negotiation with them because if they're like they really want to contribute and they understand the motivations of the organization and you know say it's a nonprofit or something or an event that isn't isn't making a profit for the host organization, then they can kick it back to their speaker bureau and say, "Hey, I I agreed to this, make it work." <laughs> Kind
0: of thing. Yeah. Well, and that leads me to a similar, not similar, but that leads me to a related question. How do you measure speaker impact? So how do you decide, you know, is this speaker worth bringing back for a similar group or this this person totally hit it out of the park and, and they're a mm-hmm. fantastic speaker? How do you measure that?
1: Uh, I, I love A good old post-event survey. Um, And (laughs) typically, um, like, I literally want to measure what people, uh, how people reacted to it. Now, we don't, we try to keep our surveys fairly reasonable to complete and not go into super depth. So typically, we just ask them, like, who was the standout speaker, right? Mm -hmm. And that gives us enough data to see kind of who the top ones were and the most um, resonant topics and whatnot. And I, there are certainly speakers I've worked with across multiple events. They're like, you know, we, we have done a lot of events in the design and tech uh, and kind of creative spaces. And so there's a lot of kind of overflow uh, between things. So, you know, I worked with a client or with a speaker on, we were going to bring them in for an event that got canceled because of COVID had to walk away from that, but then another opportunity came up and I was like, oh, they would be fantastic for this. I'm going to reach back out. And and sure enough, they were available and willing to do it and did a great job at it. So having that network, I think, especially having so many years of experience in the industry that comes with a lot of contacts and great ideas of people that, that we can reach out to and people who we've worked with in the past. And I'm you know, it's always been. It, I've had a couple experiences where people are like, "Oh, yeah, you. This is your event. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a good one. I'm, am a yes." <laughs>
0: I'm like, okay. that's what you want to hear. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask you about this because it's the topic du jour, the <laughs> AI trend. Yeah. Are you already using AI in your business, or if you're not, what do you want to use it for? What could What could it potentially help you with?
1: We are currently using it for a little bit of content generation and exploring that and how we can extend some of the content that we're creating through our podcasts and come up with additional resources and things like that that might be helpful for people. Um, I have not had an opportunity yet to apply any AI tools to our client work, uh, but I've been thinking a lot about it. What AI can be helpful for is idea generation, mm-hmm. um, voice change. So, like, I've used it to rewrite fairly stale copy for a webinar I did in a more kind of salesy voice. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, I'm just, I'm, that's not a skill I'm good at. And I can't afford to hire a copywriter to do this little piece right here. So, this is the next best thing, for example. So a little bit of, of that um, content generation it can support. But I think at the end of the day, what AI lacks and where it continues to fall short is in understanding context and nuance. And so much about community work and about the events that we do because they are for and by humans is contextual and nuanced. And so having that human, human-to-human human approach to your decision making and your planning process is going to be far more valuable than just saying, okay, Chat GPT, give me a run of show for three speakers and sure. You know.
0: Well and ultimately the the audience experience is is a human connection. It's not yes. I came here for a summary, you know. I, I came here for the bullet point list. No, no, nobody says that. They want the feeling, the emotion, the, the energy there. Do you think that your audiences are going to gravitate more to the in-person, you know, if if travel and inflation stabilizes a little bit? Because I get the feeling that a lot of people are still holding off, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but just the cost of everything.
1: Mm-hmm. What we saw last year with the industry in particular was like the thirst was real, like coming out of the pandemic everything was opened back up. It was like, okay, great, let's do this. And then layoffs, inflation, economic instability, like all this happened. And now there's a lot of hesitance out there. Is this the right bucket of money that we should be spending right now? Is this, uh, can people even attend? I mean, we had an event that we thought was going to be uh, wildly popular in person last year that just bombed on in-person ticket sales
0: because
1: know. there were still enough corporate travel stri- restrictions in place there was still enough uncertainty around costs to attend and you know corporate L&D learning and development budgets had been slashed at that point ahead of all of these layoffs so there's so many different factors that go into this that i think we are in this like really bizarre limbo of figuring out what the right balance is between what can we do in person and still get that little bit of magic that happens, per, you know, with humans in a room and what can we achieve with a virtual event that's done really well. And so I think it's just going to take some experimentation and, and exploration and trial and error.
0: Speaking of exploration and trial and error, what's new and exciting for you? What, what do you want to uh, try next? What do you want to push next?
1: Well, uh, we just started recording season three of our our podcast, which is called Make It Kick-Ass. This season, we're bringing in guests, which I'm really excited about, and digging deeper into what it's like to build exceptional community experiences and all the different ways that you can do that.
0: What do you think a guest speaker might bring to your podcast? Are you looking at other fellow event organizers or people who work in the event space?
1: Uh, It's a mix. So uh, I've got a couple kind of colleagues and vendors that we've worked with uh, in past events. Like um, we have like a dance ambassador and movement storyteller uh, who's going to talk about that component. And I have a colleague who does improv-based Uh, event facilitation talk about how improv can contribute to an experience and then what we just recorded this morning was more broad about the future of work and how we can be more pro-human in an anti-human economy um and so it's kind of we're a little all over the place
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it's gonna be really fun (laughs) yeah sounds good
1: i will say that the the other thing that i'm excited about from a personal standpoint is that my husband and I just bought a house in Palm Springs, California. Wow. Um I've been a lifelong resident. Thank you. And I'm really excited to explore what it means to live down there in the winters, but more importantly to like meet a whole new group of people. Like I just I, I want to like get to know that community and build up a community of our own down there. Uh, and I'm just, I'm really excited about what that means for us and, and kind of new doors that that's going to open. Cause we've been in the same place now for a very long time.
0: That's exciting. I just moved to a new city a year ago. So, I'm Oh, awesome. Okay. <laughs> Not quite as far, but still, um, uh, that sounds like an adventure of a lifetime. So I think you're going to meet all kinds of like-minded folks and develop a whole expanded community there that yep. you can continue to to build on your your vision and your business. And that sounds ideal, really.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping it'll also offer great opportunities for new work and new types of communities that we can support through through the stuff that we do.
0: Definitely, definitely. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today, Isaac. I've loved speaking with you. It's, it's so interesting to hear about event planning, especially since the pandemic and have as things have evolved. It's there's so much new opportunity and and ways of presenting, and yet the core of connection and bringing human beings together is still the classic draw. So I loved hearing all about this today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It really is all about human connection. That's why we're here. That's how we relate to each other. And if we can just focus on that, then we'll have better connections, better communities and better people.
0: If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.